Good morning. What a wonderful hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And it was a, it was a hymn that was actually inspired by Psalm 46, the text that we're going to be reading today. And Martin Luther wrote that hymn in 1521 as he and his companions were headed toward the city of Worms in Germany to stand before the, the famous diet. And in this diet of worms, Martin Luther would have to give an account for the Protestant Reformation. And this hymn is often referred to as the battle hymn of the Reformation. And Martin Luther famously said, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, amen. Very appropriate words, God help me, amen, because that's what Psalm 46 is really all about. It's all about the fact that God is our help. He's a very present protection for his people. And it's easy for, for us to forget that in the midst of our chaotic lives in this just turbulent world that we live in, that, that God is in the midst of us and he's ready to help in times of trouble. With that, let's pray. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to gather here together as your saints, to be able to offer you in our praises and our worship, and to sit under the teaching of your word. And I just pray this morning that you illuminate our hearts by your spirit. In your word today, it says, be still and know that I am God. So I just pray, Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you still our hearts, that you open our eyes, unstop our ears, so that we may receive your word this morning and be changed by it. I just thank you and give you all the glory. I pray this morning that your spirit speak in and through me, that I just fade into the background as I bring forth your word, and that your voice be heard loud and clear by your people. I just thank you and praise you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. His boss asked him to step into the conference room. It had been, the last 72 hours had been a time of both great blessing and tremendous trial. See, his wife was experiencing complications. She was two months pregnant with their second child, and she started to experience symptoms of miscarriage. So as you can imagine, this, this must have been just a very emotional and turbulent time for them. And to make matters worse, their youngest son, who was a year old, had just come down with a virus. So his wife had to go off to the hospital by herself as he stayed home to care for their sick child. As if any of you who, who have had children or have children that are young, when they get a stomach virus, of course, what's the first thing that happens? You get it as well. I've been there many times myself. So he had contracted the same virus almost immediately and, and was gravely ill. So good news came from the hospital, however. His wife was okay and, and the baby was going to be okay. But the bad news is that the doctor recommended that she be on bed rest for several months. And what this meant is that she wouldn't be able to return to work and they'd have to just survive on his income alone. So as, as he recuperated and, and returned to work, he, he was both at the same time very grateful to have a healthy wife and a healthy baby on the way, but at the same time very afraid and nervous because now he'd have to figure out how to survive on just his income alone. And that's when his boss called him into the conference room and said, I have to let you go. How many of us have face situations like this when our world just seems to be crumbling in around us and, and we're overwhelmed by our circumstances. This account reminds us that calamities and uncertainties can come upon us at any time and in many unexpected ways. If we've been following the news at all, we, it's no secret that we live in uncertain times. We live in the midst of what many are calling a, a moral revolution. There's political upheaval, there's wars, strife, and just hostility towards God's people on a global scale. And it just seems like the forces of darkness are aligned against us. And it's very easy in these times of trouble to, be, to become overwhelmed by fear and the feeling that we're alone in the midst of our problems. 
So how do, we keep, how do we keep from being consumed by that? How do we keep from being consumed by our fear and just this uncertainty? We need a refuge. And the psalmist tells us today that because God is our refuge and strength, we can have confidence in the face of monumental trouble. The psalmist tells us that we're, we're going to face all sorts of calamity in this lifetime, from natural disasters to political upheaval and war, personal conflicts and strife. And we really get the sense that when we read this psalm, that, that the psalmist is telling us that we utterly lack the resources necessary to deal with it on our own. So what do we do when we're faced with life's biggest problems? What do we do when our boss calls us into the conference room and says, I have to let you go? What do we do when we watch our retirement options evaporate before our eyes because the market's experiencing a correction? What do we do when we go to the doctor because we're not feeling well and he tells us we have six months to live? See, it's easy to feel afraid and distress in these times of trouble. But, but the psalmist assures us here that for God's people, for Christians, that God is our refuge and strength, and he has the resources we need to deal with life's biggest problems. And he provides us with these resources in three ways. So this morning, we're going to look at his present protection. So God provides us with his present protection. He provides us with an unshakable foundation. And finally, he provides us with certain victories. So those are the three things that we're going to look at as we, start, as we uh, explore his word this morning. We're going to look at his present protection, his unshakable foundation, and certain victory. So the first thing that we see here is that because God is our present, our pre- present protection, we can have confidence in the face of monumental trouble. So the natural, uh, the natural question to ask is, why? Why can we have such confidence? And the first thing that we see here is that God can be trusted. Look with me at the first part of verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength. Now the word refuge there literally means a place of trust. So it describes God as a place of trust. And we see in the Old Testament, the Old, in Old Testament Israel, they had six cities that are called cities of refuge. And the purpose of these cities is that if somebody committed, uh, they, they had taken a life unintentionally, they could flee off to these cities. And once they were inside the walls, Nothing could hurt them. So no one could come after them seeking vengeance or seeking judgment. So they were safe. For believers, God is such a city of refuge for us. See, when the world is crashing in around us and our circumstances overwhelm us, we can flee to him for our protection. We can flee to him because he can be trusted. Psalm 18.2 puts it this way. It says, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God in whom I take refuge my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Let's take a look at at verse 5 for a second. We're going to return here in a moment, but I just want to point something out to you. In verse 5 it says, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Let's take a look at that and compare it to what it says in verse 2. It says, therefore we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. So we can trust God because he's, he's an impregnable fortress. He's unmovable. We can have confidence in the face of, of monumental troubles when he's our protection because even though the, 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 the mountains of the earth be shaken in calamity, God's presence protects us and we will not be moved. The second thing we see here is that God can be found. Let's take a look at the second part of verse 1. It says, God is a very present help in trouble. What that literally means is that He's a help, as a, a help he has been, been found exceedingly. A help he has been found exceedingly. I know that's a bit of a tongue twister, but that's, that's literally what the psalmist is telling us there. And what it means is he's, he's ever present in tribulations. He can be found exceedingly. Like, like he's not far off. He's right there in the midst of us. All we need to do is flee to him. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse 4 it says, But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found by them. So that means, that what that means, brothers and sisters, if we seek God, he will be found in the presence of trouble. See, in these cities of refuge, they had an interesting tradition. What they would do is once a year, they would clear the roads, they would remove all the stones, or they would, they would remove all the, anything that would hinder somebody from fleeing to the city so that nothing could get in their way. In the same way, nothing stands in front of us or nothing stands in our way when we flee to God in the times of trouble. See, God is not disinterested in our problems. He's not far off. He can be found. He's a very present help in trouble. In verse 5, it says, God is in the midst of her, and God will help her when morning dawns. So God is, is easily found. He's right there. He's, he's as far away as us just coming before him in prayer and seeking him and seeking his face in trouble. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. It says, Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. I don't know about you, but that seems pretty terrifying. And, and commentators, some commentators believe that that's talking about natural disasters. And others believe that it's, it's hyperbolic language or exaggerated language pointing to uh, just, just forces of chaos in the world. But either way, the point is, the point that the psalmist is trying to make here is that God is our fortress in the midst of the most, of the most dreadful calamities that we can imagine. About a week ago, we had a, a workshop at our church. It was a, an evangelism workshop, and it was geared mostly for the adults. And one of the, the challenges that my wife and I have as, as parents of three young children is we always have to try to figure out, well, what are we going to do with the kids? Uh, one of the things that we've been doing is my, my oldest son is almost 13, so over time we've been giving him more and more responsibility. So we thought to ourselves, maybe we can leave our nine-year-old with him at home and they'll be okay. And we had done this in the past. Mostly it's been five-minute trips to the grocery store, uh, no extended periods of time. And we were figuring our church is about 10 minutes away and we'll only be there for a couple of hours. So, so we left Kyle at home with our older son, Brandon. And praise God, everything worked out okay. Sure enough, they, they were fine. On our way home, we called home and everything seemed okay. It's funny, my wife and I were even joking as one of the challenges we always have is finding a sitter. And we said, hey, if, if it worked this time, maybe we can actually go on a date night and leave them alone. Um, but sure enough, when we got home, my wife, is, as she was putting the kids to the bed, Kyle confessed to her that he was afraid. He was scared being left home alone with his, his brother because he knew that if something really bad happened, that they wouldn't have the resources to, to deal with it. They wouldn't be able to handle it. So he felt exposed. He felt vulnerable. He felt alone because he, he didn't have my wife and I there to protect him. See, we feel fear in the face of our greatest problems for the same exact reason. See, our problems make us feel exposed. They make us feel vulnerable. They make us feel alone. And we know deep down in our hearts that we don't have the resources we need on our own to deal with them. But what the psalmist is assuring us here, what he's assuring God's people is that we're not alone. We're not exposed. It says we shall not fear because God is our refuge and strength. He's our protection and we can trust him. So the question is, if you're not trusting in God in the face of life's problems, who or what are you trusting in? See, any other protection is not a protection but a lie. Any other protection will fail you. So when your boss calls you into the conference room and lets you go, what do you do? Maybe you're thinking, well, I've got some money saved, out and saved up, and you, you start calculating. You start trying to figure out in your head, well, how long is this money going to last? 
before it runs out. But it will run out eventually. You go to your doctor. He tells you you have six months to live. What do you do? Maybe you start trying to figure out ways that you can prolong your life. But it's going to end eventually. See, any other thing we turn to for protection, any other thing we turn to for refuge and safety will fail us. But God's protection will never fail. And see, it's not saying here that God's people are free from danger because the fact of the matter is the job loss may come. Relationships might not get mended. We, may die, we, we will eventually die. We may suffer. But the fact is that we can feel safe in the face of these things because God is our ultimate protection. See, we can face the loss of a job and not be scared because we know, we know ultimately that our security is not based on our circumstances. We can face death with confidence because we know Jesus Christ, God come in the flesh, overcame the power of sin and death, and that if we've hung our hope on him to save us, we'll never die, really. See, only in the cross of Jesus Christ can we find the protection from the only foes that could ever really hurt us anyway. John chapter 16, verses 32 and 33 say it this way, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The question I have for you this morning is, do you know it? And if you know it, do you believe it? Do you turn to him? If you turn to him in the face of life's greatest problems, he will be found exceedingly. He's a very present help in the face of trouble. The second thing we see here is that God is our unshakable foundation. And because he's our unshakable foundation, we can have confidence in the face of life's greatest trouble. Look at me at verse 5. It says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And the reason she won't be moved is because God is with us. God is with us. So what does the psalmist mean by in the midst of her? Let's take a quick look at verse 4. It says, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, ancient cities were, were settled near bodies of water or near rivers because waters are a source of life. And, and a, a constant steady flow of water would, would provide water for them to drink and for them to water their crops. And in times of war, enemies, the first thing that the enemies would attack is the city's water supply because they knew if they could cut off the source of water, they could defeat them. What's interesting is that Jerusalem had no river running through it because God chose Zion to be his holy habitation because God chose Israel as the place that he would dwell with his people where they would come before him and meet with him and worship him. He himself is the source of living water for his people. He supplies the river. See, we draw our courage and strength from this river that can never run out. It can never be cut off by our enemies. And as Christians, as as believers, we can have even more confidence because of what Jesus himself promised us. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, chapter 28, verse 20, he promises that he would be with us to the end of the age. There's an account in John's gospel of chapter, chapter 7, verses 33 through 39 that goes like this. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this was said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. See, for believers, the Spirit of Christ is ever with us. In him we have hearts that flow with rivers of living water that can never run dry. The second thing we see here is God's presence provides stability. The second part of verse 5 says, She shall not be moved. 
Why won't she be moved? Because God is in the midst of her. Look again with me at verses 2 and 3. It says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. See, while the world is crashing in around you and you feel that sense of overwhelm from your problems, you can be secure only when your foundation is built on Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 26, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it, it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. See, Jesus draws a dividing line between himself and any other foundation for life. Now, I can't help but think of unstable foundations and not think of the leading tower of Pisa. Uh, The leading tower of Pisa was closed for about a dozen years and it was reopened in 2012. And the engineers had undergone this monumental um, salvation project. They, they, they spent about $25 million to stabilize the tower. They removed 110 tons of dirt and reduced the lean by about 16 inches, which doesn't sound like a whole lot, right? See, the tower had been tilting further and further away from vertical over the centuries, and it got to the point where the 185-foot tower was about 17 feet. The top was 17 feet further south from the bottom. And the Italians were afraid, the authorities were afraid that it would eventually collapse. So what was the problem? Was it a bad design? Was it poor workmanship? Inferior marble? No. The problem was was what was underneath. See, the tower, the city of Pisa, was built on sandy soil. And it couldn't support a monument of that size. It didn't have a firm enough foundation. So the question we need to ask ourselves is, what foundation are we building our lives on? Are we building our, our lives on the, on the rock? Or are we building our lives on sand? See, the fact of the matter is, we all build our foundation on something. We all build our identities on something. For some of us, maybe it's our careers. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's healthy living. Maybe it's moral decency. Maybe it's religiosity. If we're young, maybe we build our foundations or our identities on our grades. But the fact is, we live in a constant state of fear because we know that deep down, none of those things are real. None of those things can sustain us. It's a facade. It's a false sense of security. They're not unshakable. Because the fact is, the storms of life are going to come. The boss is going to call and we're going to lose our job. The, The earth gives way and our friends are nowhere to be found. We go to the doctor and we get bad news. See, if your foundation is built on your career or popularity or health, and something bad happens and those things are taken away, how are you going to stand? How can you tell what you've built your foundation on? The way that you can tell what you've built your foundation on is it's whatever causes you to look down on other people. See, if you've identified yourself as a hard worker or, or built your foundation on the fact that you're a hard worker, and I'm not saying that hard work is bad. Hard work is a virtuous thing. It's only bad when that's your source of identity and your foundation. Now, if you've identified yourself as a hard worker, what that causes you to do is look down on people that you consider lazy with disdain. Let's say you've built your identity or your foundation on your your career or money or your accomplishments. You look down on others who haven't accomplished as much and you snub your nose at them. What if you've built your identity on your religiosity? You look down on those who are less devout. 
with contempt. However, if your foundation is built in Christ, you can't look down at other people because you know that you're not saved by your accomplishments, but you're saved by a person. If you know that you're not saved by your, your, your good works, if you know that you're a sinner that's saved only by grace and it's something that you don't deserve, you can never look down on other people because you know you don't deserve the good gift that God has given you. And your foundation will never fail you. And finally, we see that because God is our certain victory, we can have confidence in the face of monumental trouble. And the first thing we notice here is that God is powerful. Let's look at the first part of verse 6. It says, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. So we live in a crazy world, right? I mean, I, I just happened to glance at CNN.com on Thursday, and this is what I read. Russia launches new Syria strikes. Death toll in Hajj stampede leaps. At least seven dead from postal bombs. Millions are gone after gambling scam. So the world is in a state of utter chaos. The world's in a state of utter chaos and utter confusion. And that's not to mention the deliberate persecution of God's people around the world. Sadly, I, I, I know most of you may have heard about yet another shooting on Tuesday where a gunman broke into a school and killed people. But this time, who is he targeting? Christians. So this persecution that we've only been reading about and hearing about on the news is coming this way. I'm convinced of it, and, and, and Jesus himself tells us that it's coming this way. But what the psalmist is telling us here is that God is more powerful than all of it. Look at the second part of verse 6. It says, he utters his voice and the earth melts. See, God speaks and all the powers of the world dissolve like snow before the shining sun. All of these things are nothing compared to the awesome power of the Almighty. Look with me at verse 8. It says, Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. Who has brought desolations? The Lord. God, Yahweh, the God of Jacob, our fortress. The same God who is a refuge and strength for his people is the same God who will bring desolations on the earth and bring to an end the power of God's enemies. He can bring it all to nothing by the word of his voice. Psalm 66.3 says, Say to God, how awesome are your deeds, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing before you. God is powerful more than any of the forces of the world that are working against his people. And God is on our side. When he's, he's our refuge and strength. He's our, our fortress, our deliverer. He is for us. I love this quote by uh, Tim Keller. He's talking about Jesus, and it says, Approach him as the Lamb of God, and he will become a lion for you, defending you. But reject him as the Lamb of God, and he will become a lion against you. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way. That's from Psalm 2, verse 12. See, God is going to bring an end to all the powers of darkness in the world. But if you're his, nothing can stand against you. The second thing we see here is that he is sovereign. Look, at me, look with me at verse 9. It says, He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. See, the bow was a symbol of strength. And what the psalmist is saying here is that God is going to crush the symbol of strength and power of all the enemies of his people. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible that speaks of God's sovereignty is found in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 11. These are very familiar verses. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, 
My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. See, God is the one that's in control. None of the forces of darkness can stand in the end. Lastly, lastly, we see that God will be exalted. He will be exalted. Let's look at verse 10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The word be still there means to release or to let go. In this part of the psalm, God is now speaking in the first person. He's commanding the forces of chaos and the nations to stop their raging and recognize him as God. He is powerful. He is sovereign. And in the end, they will listen. See, the crowning moment of God's glory is the cross of Jesus Christ. The psalmist is looking forward to the day when God would be exalted in the earth. He'll be exalted in the death, burial, and resurrection of his son and the salvation of his people. At his second coming, Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, will return to the earth to defeat the nations and rule them with a scepter of iron. Christ's sovereign authority will be displayed and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So why can we have confidence in God's sovereignty? See, we know the end from the beginning, right? There's a story of an old country preacher. He was challenged by a very educated atheist. And there seems to be a lot of these folks running around these days. And, and the skeptic was challenging him. He said, how, how come Christians always claim that they're going to have victory in the end? How can you be so sure? The preacher said, well, son, it says in the beginning of my Bible that God was in charge when time started. I flip my Bible over and I read it and it says in the end that God will be in charge when time runs down. So I figure that between the beginning and the end, there was no one strong enough to beat him. See, we already know how the story ends. The challenge for us, the problem that we face as God's people today is that we're so fixated on the here and now that we forget that we were created for eternity. And because we have this here and now mindset, instead of one that's focused on eternity, we turn to other things instead of God. The fact of the matter is we think that the problems we're facing here on this earth are our greatest problems. And what happens is, the reason why that happens is, whatever it is that we're turning to in the here and now, it's more real to us than the victory that God has given in Jesus. See, saints, when we sin, the reason why we sin is that whatever it is we're chasing after is more real to us in that moment than the love of God. So how do we make it real? How do we make this story of victory real? I once heard a preacher put it this way, and I thought this was brilliant. He walks out on stage, and he's holding a rope. And in one hand, he's got one end of the rope, and the rest of the rope is trailing off on the stage behind the curtain, and you can't see it. So he holds up the rope, and in between the end and about, about a foot and a half away, the rope is red. And what he says is this section, this foot and a half section that's red, represents your life here on this earth. The section that trails off behind the stage is your life in eternity. And because we can't see the end of the rope, we're convinced that our greatest problems are the ones that we're facing in this lifetime on the earth. But we know that life's a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. But eternity lasts forever. So we should be focusing on eternal problems, not on, or our eternal problems are the, the greatest problems that we have. And we see a, a really good example of this in Mark's gospel in chapter 2. This is where Jesus is encountering a paralytic. And this is toward the beginning of Jesus' ministry and he had just returned to Capernaum after going throughout the country and healing people and casting out demons. And his fame has started to spread. So many people have gathered to see him and hear him preach. 
So he's in a house, and the crowd is so large that there's no room to get in. Even, you can't even get in through the door. So then you, then you have this paralytic and his four friends, and, and his friends are desperate to get him to Jesus because they know that Jesus could heal him. They couldn't get in through the door because the crowds were too great. So what did they do? They climbed on the roof and they cut a hole in the roof and lowered the man down on his bed. Jesus looks at them and sees their faith and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, imagine being this paralytic. Here you are, you hear about Jesus, about this man that's going around healing people. You go through all, through all this effort to get to him. Your friends cut a hole in the roof and lower you down and, and you finally make it. You're, fa- you're face to face with the man who can get you to walk again. The moment has come and what does he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. So what must have this paralytic been thinking? I, I got to imagine that he's thinking, okay, that's nice, but can't you see I have bigger problems here? What Jesus is saying is, no, you don't. No, you don't. What he's saying here is your biggest problem is not your broken body, but your broken relationship with God. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, maybe you're like the paralytic. Maybe you're here today because you've heard about Jesus. Maybe, you can, maybe you've heard that he can solve your biggest problems. And the fact is you're right. He can. Your biggest problems just aren't what you think they are. Like the paralytic, your biggest problem is not your broken body. It's not your broken marriage. It's not your messed up finances. It's not your lost job. It's your broken relationship with God. See, your sin has separated you from a relationship with God. And that's not just a here and now problem. That's an eternity problem. Now, how do we know that's our biggest problem? How do we know that sin is our biggest problem? Jesus. Sin is such a big problem that Almighty God left his throne on high, came down to the earth, took on human flesh, bled and died on a Roman cross to solve it. That's how we know. So how can we be still and know? How can we be still? How can we be free from fear in the face of of life's biggest troubles? We repent and turn to Jesus. Hang Hang all your hope on him to save you. See, the Bible says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look with me again at verse 9. It says, He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. See, on the cross, Jesus put an end to the only war that could ever really hurt you. He took the spear for you so that you wouldn't have to. He binds your wounds, he puts his armor on you, and he shatters the spear of sin and death that stand against you. So turn to him today in faith. And like the paralytic, he'll look at you and say, Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. During World War II, a U.S. Marine was separated from his unit on a Pacific island. The fighting had been intense, and the smoke and crossfire, in the smoke and crossfire, he lost touch with his comrades. Alone in the jungle, he could hear the enemy creeping forward, coming up the, the ridge to where he was hiding. So scrambling for cover, he found his way into a cave. And although he was safe for a moment, he realized that once the enemy got up there, and once they started looking for him, he'd quickly be found. As he waited, he prayed, Lord, if it be your will, please protect me. Whatever your will, though, I love you and trust you. Amen. After praying, he lay there quietly, listening to the enemy begin to draw close. He thought, well, I guess the Lord's not going to help me out of this one. Then he saw a spider begin to build a web over the front of his cave. 
As he watched, he was listening, and he heard the enemy searching for him and coming closer as the spire layered strand, spider layered strand upon strand of web across the opening of the cave. He laughed and thought, what I need is a brick wall, and what the Lord has given me is a spider web. God does have a sense of humor. As the enemy drew close, he watched from the darkness of his hideout, and he could see them searching one cave after another. He thought for sure when they came his way that he was going to be found. So he got ready. He got ready to make his last stand. To his amazement, however, after glancing in the direction of his cave, they moved on. And suddenly he realized that with the spiderweb covering the entrance, the cave looked like no one had entered it for quite a, t- quite a while. He prayed, Lord, forgive me. I had forgotten that in you a spider's web is stronger than a brick wall. We all face times of great trouble. And when we do, it's easy for us to forget the victories that God would work out in our lives, sometimes in the most surprising ways. Brothers and sisters, remember this, that whatever is happening in your life, with God, a mere spider's web can become a brick wall of protection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the glorious gift of your gospel and the, and the gift of your son, the Lord Jesus, who came down on high and took on human flesh and died for us and died on the sin of death on a Roman cross and took the wrath of God for us so that we wouldn't have to. Lord, I just pray that you make that real to us, Lord. Help us to see the glory of your son and the glory of your gracious gospel that can put an end to the only thing, the only war that could have ever hurt us anyway. Father, I pray your protection on us today that, that as we leave this place, we turn to you as our strength and refuge and just remember that you stand ready to protect us as our fortress. I thank you and praise, praise you in Christ's name. Amen.